0: Fill the void. And so, of course, money comes into view, doesn't it? I doubt there's anybody in the world who loves money for its own sake. It's not that shiny. But money can buy you a nice car, a house, a a yacht, a jet, an island, if you want it. It can do a lot for you. But what Rockefeller understood was this. If you think that money, if you think that possessions will... Fill the void in your soul, the aching longing for meaning, for lasting happiness. Well, you'll never, ever, have enough. Your happiness will always be tantalisingly just out of your reach. And Rockefeller was a Christian who gave all his money away because he understood that money was not the root of happiness. Our passage this morning is all about where true contentment can be found. Whatever your circumstances are, we're going to see that true contentment is found in the wholehearted pursuit of Christ and the godliness that he demands. So, in verses 3 to 5, Paul shows us how abandoning the pursuit of Christ and godliness destroys the church. Then, in verses 6 to 8, we're going to see that he shows us that true contentment is found in the pursuit of Christ. And then, in verses 9 to 10, he shows us the heart of the alternative the pursuit of money and possessions, which leads people to shipwreck their faith. And you should have a little outline on the back of your service sheet that might help you to see that as we go, into taking notes. But of course, Paul wrote this a little passage as part of a longer passage, at least from 5 verse 1, which is itself part of a bigger book. And just look down at verse 2 with me, would you? The, the, the bit that Ross read for us. These are the things you are to teach and insist on the identity of the, these things is important for our passage because these are the things that the false teachers in Ephesus are departing from. And Paul at least has in mind, going back to 5 verse 1 where Paul uses the word exhort. He says, Timothy, exhort older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And that word exhort is the same as what's translated here as the word insist. And Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, the things i just said to you, you've got to exhort people, you've got to insist on these things, you've got to teach people these things. And care for your own widows and the most vulnerable among you. Respect your elders. Serve your bosses well. Well, these things, that are clearly a problem in Ephesus, teach these things. Timothy is to teach and insist on the things that Paul has already taught. But of course, if you've missed... Uh, much of this series, if you're a guest here, though, you might be thinking, well, why insist on these things? Because the whole book of 1 Timothy is about what God is doing. Now, Paul wants the church to, to reflect that. So in chapter 1, verse 4, uh, we're told that God is creating something. What is God doing? God is creating his household. And so in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, I'm writing this whole book so that you will know how to live as God's household. Paul wants us to understand how to live as God's people because God is creating something new. He's creating the church from all the disparate tribes and tongues and nations and bringing us together as one people and there's a way we should live as a result. And so Paul says, insist on these things. Insist on this godliness that accords with uh, the scriptures you've been taught. And so throughout the book, Paul has done two things. He's, uh, He's exposed the false teachers. The false things that they believe, and then insisted that Timothy does a different thing. He, he appoints the right people, and he disciplines the false teachers, and he preaches godliness. He preaches the gospel of Jesus and godliness, and godliness and doctrinal soundness. In other words, as we come towards the end of the letter, God is creating the church. But for the church to truly be God's household, to live as an alternative society, the way that God intends us to, we need healthy doctrine and a commitment to living according to the Scriptures.
1: And so now Paul returns back to where he
0: began the letter by addressing the topic of the false teachers. And the first thing Paul wants the church to do to understand is they must pursue Christ and godliness. That's verses 3 to 5. Notice verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise, and Paul isn't speculating. Do it if there is rhetorical. He knows there are people teaching otherwise. His point is this: Timothy, I've taught you these things over here, this body of truth here, the gospel. But there are some in Ephesus, even some of the elders that you're working with, who are teaching otherwise. They're teaching something completely different. Literally, they're teaching a different doctrine, a different body of truth. And so, if you tell them what Paul is saying here, it's popular in the West today. To subscribe to something like this mantra it doesn't really matter what someone believes as long as they hold it sincerely we're all climbing to God by different routes all different roads up the same mountain but we're all trying to get to God at the top and so it doesn't really matter which way you go and nobody can really be sure of the truth anyway but Paul says there is his teaching that these things and there is every other Teaching. Every different doctrine. Sometimes you hear it in the church as well. Not so much all religions lead to the same place, although you do get some people who teach that and they're wrong. But surely every interpretation of the scripture is permitted. So long as we have our Bibles open, it doesn't matter whether we're a Roman Catholic or or a, a Protestant or a Jehovah's Witness, frankly. Surely, so long as you have the Bible open, and you're teaching from the Bible, it doesn't matter, does it? To which Paul has already responded, no. That's wrong, too. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul describes the false teachers as people who desire to be teachers of the Old Testament law. They have their Bibles, they teach the Bible. And they're wrong. They're teaching wrong doctrine from the right book because they're not teaching about Jesus. So hard to stomach as it is for us, in our pluralistic age, there is only one truth. And at least in its main point, there are some secondary matters of it which are disputable, but in its main points, the Bible is crystal clear. And any departure from, from the truth into false teaching is abhorrent. Which is why everybody here who teaches the Bible whether in Sunday school or in small groups or from the front of the church is accountable to that same plumb line of the faith. The scriptures is why I hope all of you have got the Bible open front of you. And you're checking what I'm saying according to what Paul says here. Notice there are two parts to the error here. Of course there's the positive statement they teach otherwise actively teaching false doctrine. But notice the negative statement as well, and they do not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to Godly teaching. The gospel is the teaching of the Lord Jesus and the teaching about the Lord Jesus. I've always given something of a hint of that to us. I mean, chapter one, verse fifteen, where I said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about Jesus who came to save sinners. And Jesus himself, at the end of the Gospel, says that the whole scripture is about him and his mission. So the whole Bible, including the Old Testament law, is about Jesus and how he has come to save sinners. And so all true teaching is related to that. And to the personal work of Jesus. And so perhaps a good question to ask when you're listening to any teaching is is it about Jesus? And is it about the godliness that accords with the teaching about Jesus? Notice what Paul does here. It's very interesting. Paul doesn't uh, doesn't go on to explain all the ways in which their doctrine is wrong, the false teachers. I guess when you've got one truth and many millions of different false doctrines, it's quite hard to list all of the ways they're wrong. So Paul doesn't do that. What he does instead is, look, there's one thing that they all have in common. Their ignorance produces ungodliness so Paul looks at the life of the false teachers rather than at their teaching. So verse 4, they are conceited and understand nothing. That verb they're conceited, or they've become foolish, governs everything that happens in verses 4-5. to five. Everything that he says after that explains what it means to be foolish, to be conceited. They are proud people, they're conceited people, even though they understand nothing. Imagine somebody uh, teaching you to drive. That that day, perhaps you haven't got your driving lesson. yet. Perhaps you remember back to those days a long time ago. And the car rocks up outside your house with the L on the front and the the logo on the side. And perhaps something on the roof as well. You get into the car and there's two sets of pedals. This is great. This is what I'm looking for. What happens if your driving instructor actually doesn't have their own license? What if they just, they've got the car and they're faking it? How would you know? After all, you don't know how to drive yet either, so how would you know that they don't know what they're talking about? Well, I guess you tell from the chaos of not you? You tell from the car crashes and the stupid things that come out of their mouth. That's how you tell, and so it is here. You tell from the car crash of a church that the false teaching creates. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words. That quarrelling there is expressly forbidden to elders of the church in chapter 3, verse 2. But here, it's a central plank of the life of the church under these false teachers. They fight about genealogies, they fight about trivia. What they don't talk about is Jesus. Of course, then you have one person's opinion over here, and another person's opinion over there, and, and so what do you get? Envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction in the church. Everybody's opinion is as equally valid as everybody else's. We're all climbing the same mountain, different roads, because we're not. We're all arguing with each other about everything. And once you take the Bible away as as the plot line of the truth, well, everybody's opinion is as valid as anybody else's. And all you've got left is the strength of personality, the strength of uh, character, charisma, rhetoric, argumentation, and perhaps just the size of my gang. We're bigger than you. We must be right. And so you get all this fighting, all this horrible division within the church. And God is creating one new person out of all these different divided tribes and tongues. And false teaching shatters that. And these false teachers are described in three ways, if you notice. First, they are people of corrupt minds. But the corrupt (coughs) is a powerful image. Think of um, a long rusted hinge on a gate that's not been used for years, and you, and you start to and it just cracks and crumbles. Or, or the, um, those images from, from uh, those TV commercials asking you to give money, and you know, the, the child in uh, some part of Africa whose skeleton is all showing through, they're emaciated and near death's door, that's what's going on here. The corrupt mind is the emaciated, broken, ready to keel over at any moment mind, morally and intellectually bereft. More than that, they've been robbed of the truth, did you notice? That is, they've given up Jesus, they've wandered away from the truth, and now they've got no grasp on the truth at all. It's all Jesus and truth, or it's all error. They've given up. It's a driving instructor with absolutely no driving skills at all. a false teacher who knows nothing. Well, you might then ask the question, well, why would you put yourself forward to be an elder of the church if you don't believe the gospel? I take it's for the same reason that someone might decide to become a driving instructor without actually knowing how to drive. Verse 5, they think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Not true godliness, you understand, just the appearance of godliness. But like the instructor in the car, having all the right tools and looking like they're the right thing, they get you to pay for their instruction. They want to be rich, and so they teach whatever people want to hear to persuade people to pay them. How would you recognize a false driving instructor? I take it you look at their driving and their instructions, and so it is here. God is building the church, but false teaching sows envy and strife. It's destructive to the life of the community. So, if you find that destruction, you probably find false teaching. If you find a pastor who's in it for the money and will say whatever you want to hear, well, then run away. I know it sounds thing to say there are people who've been in pastoral ministry for the money. I think there are plenty of, uh, of senior clergy and bishops in the Church of England, at least my denomination, who have a nice house and a nice income and don't do a lot with it. There are plenty of people who are in it for the money. Paul says to Timothy, teach these things. Teach the truth about Jesus. Teach the lifestyle and the godliness that fits with the gospel of Jesus who has come to save you from sin for a life serving God. And I tell you, if Timothy is to teach these things for a healthy church, then we... As, as God's community listening into this matter should be pursuing Christ and godliness too. Let me apply this point in three ways then. The first thing that everybody in this room needs is to be completely convinced in what Paul is saying here. It's not palatable in our generation, but we must be convinced there is only one God, only one way that gets to God, one truth, one Jesus, one manner of life that accords with the gospel. We must not allow that pernicious lie that all truth claims are equal. All other truth claims are error. Having been convinced of this, well, secondly, we to clear on our doctrine, our body of truth. I, I pray that's what we're teaching here. I pray what we teach in our small groups and in our Sunday school and so on. But let me encourage everybody here to take responsibility for the truth that they believe. When you take responsibility to learn the truth in such a way that you can discern truth from error? For yourself and for the sake of the church? As a family, we've just started using something called the New City Catechism. a little app for your phone or for your uh, tablet. Working together through some of the doctrines of the faith. 52 sessions, 52 weeks of the year, you cover all the major doctrines. So far, I think it's been pretty good. Why not do something like that for your family, if you haven't got a family, just for you and your housemates? Whatever. When when was the last time you deliberately went out of your way to think about uh, the whole body of truth uh, that Christians are to believe? How would you stop the faulty driving instructor? See, the student who gets into the driving instructor's car, but has spent some time thinking hard about what driving is. They've read the books, they've uh, looked at some YouTube clips, they've, they've really got the grips with it. They've watched their parents driving. Well, I guess they're going to discern the faulty driving structure pretty quickly, where they start spouting rubbish. And so you get out of the car and you don't have that crash. You don't risk your life putting yourself in that person's hands. You get out and you walk away. Like Timothy, we need to be able to discern individually as a whole church together what is truth and what is error. We are to pursue Christ and the godliness that are called to the gospel of Christ. But here the Ephesians are faced with false teachers who, who are not in for Christ, they're in for the money. Of course, Paul has said back in chapter 5, verse said we saw last week that we should pay our, our pastoral staff. I said, not, there shouldn't be money involved, but nobody should be doing it for the money. Instead, Paul turns to look at the true gain that comes from pursuing Christ and godliness. Pursue Christ and godliness for great contentment, verses 6 to 8. Now these three verses are clearly about contentment. Look at the the first line. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The but there is important. It tells us that that a contrast is happening here between the false teachers and uh, the true pursuit of the godly um, person. They love financial gain and the appearance of godliness but Paul knows that true godliness with contentment is the real blessing. They want money, and we'll come to that in verses 9 and 10. But true godliness with contentment is real gain. Notice that Paul reminds us, to begin with, from his doctrine, from his body of truth. He gives us an eternal perspective. We're in this world for a very short time, aren't we? We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. The idea so often in this life is uh, the winner is the person who gets the most stuff, but that ignores the reality that whatever you have gets left behind in the end. I think of those those graves, perhaps the tombs of the great pharaohs, or even the various sort of burial mounds of the ancient Britons. They're wealthy. You, you dig them up, and there's there's the body, rotted away. There's their gold, their silver, their bow and arrow, their, sometimes even their servants who've been martyred and buried with them so that they can take with them into the afterlife, not only themselves, but great grand clothes and golden things and their weapons and their servants, and of course you dig them up and they're still there. They've not gone to the afterlife with them. You need everything behind. Naked you came into the world. Many you will go into eternity. All the people are the same in the end. It's not only a Rockefeller or the bum on the streets. Rich and poor are the same in the end. And so verse 8 If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Do you have food on your plate at home? For lunch. Do you have clothes on your back and a warm place to sleep tonight? Then then you've got all you need for that brief journey from birth to eternity. What are you worried about? Why is it that you and I so often sort of into discontentment? Do you mourn the fact that your life turned out this way rather than that way, or your cherished plans didn't quite work out the way you intended? Now you might say, well, it's easy for Paul. Paul's one of the heroes of the faith, right? He's the famous church leader. He gets to travel around all over the Mediterranean, telling people the gospel. He's still famous today. It's all right for <coughs> him. Paul uses a, a related word for this word contentment here in Philippians chapter 4. Writing from a jail cell, a Roman jail cell, damp, dark, full of rats probably, not being fed properly. And he says, I've learned to be content in every situation. Some days, of course, he's walking around the net. He's got the sun on his face and friends with him and freedom to preach the gospel and plenty of money in his travelling purse and everything is good in the world and some days he is lost at sea for two days after shipwreck he's been flogged and nearly murdered and thrown into prison for months at a stretch and being abandoned by his friends and Paul has learned to be content whichever of those situations and anything in between he's facing and Paul's not being hypothetical this is his real life this was his lived experience. I, I you say, well, perhaps he's been borrowing from the Stoics. They had a great Greek education. Perhaps he's borrowing from them. You know, th- their philosophy was to face whatever the world throws at you, with a sort of inner resolve to just grin and bear it. Is that what Paul's doing? He Paul has no inner resolve to strengthen him. He has God's resolve. This word contentment comes up in this form only once else in the New Testament. In one of my favourite passages, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, it's a stunning verse, I'm going to read it to you. Just listen to the all and every language. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that having all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abandon every good work. To the relationship between your doctrine, God is going to provide everything that you need, and your lifestyle about having every good work. Paul's contentment, you see, that having all he needs on the sufficiency of God, on the provision of God for everything that he needs. Knowing that every day God is pouring out his blessings on his children so that we don't have to worry means Paul can give himself to his calling to pour himself out for God and do wonderful things. And so Paul doesn't worry. He doesn't need to because his trust is completely in God, who provides everything that his children need. Do you see how Paul's doctrine about Jesus, about the goodness of God towards his people, how he loves his children, means that even in prison he can trust. Even in prison he can say, I'm content. Because I know I'm exactly where God wants me to be. God is good, and he'll provide everything that I need. See, Paul here replaces worry and selfish ambition with trust, and he finds contentment. Happiness, I guess. Joy. A Happiness and joy that are rooted not in some grand ambition for the future, nor in some perceived ability of himself to manufacture a future that he longs for, But simply a deep trust that God right now is doing everything necessary for us. Infinite generosity and love for his children. So let me ask you, do you want to be happy? Do you want rest from that endless strivings to fill the void in our souls? Then rest in Jesus. Pursue Christ. Pursue the knowledge and love of Christ. Find Him to be your one obsession, the one obsession that truly satisfies the soul. Finding God the one love which will always meet your needs and never let you down. And you will never have to worry again. After all, what's the alternative friends? If God is not sufficient, if you don't trust that God is going to provide, And if you're not completely happy with your circumstances right now, for whatever reason, it's not the way you wanted your life to turn out. What option is left for you? But discontentment and striving, endless striving to put right the wrongs of your life. And that brings us to the alternative that is in this passage. Pursue Christ and Godliness for great contentment, not the ruinous love of money, verses 9 and 10. Let me start out very clearly, is it? Verse 9. Those who want to get rich, it's now going from verse 5, isn't it? Where the, the, the pastors have an ambition to get wealthy through their teaching. But I think at this point, Paul has gone from the specific situation that's us to the general point about the danger of the love of money. And there it is in verse 10 for the love of money is the root of all kinds of relations, it's the love of money. It's not money per se. It's not if you've got money, you're screwed. It is if you love money, whether you have it or not, you're in trouble. Money is a doorway to something greater, isn't it? It's a doorway to a better life. That's what we think. It's the doorway to whatever we love most. And whatever it is we love instead of Jesus. Whatever obsession we have instead of Jesus. So the thing we think will satisfy us because we don't think Jesus will. So if we forget that we're only in this world for a moment and then we pass on naked into eternity then verse 9 those who want to get rich fall into temptation and are trapped into many foolish and harmful desires what are the worldly things that we think might make us happy a spouse a child a promotion a car A house, a castle in the country, a yacht, a jet, a small moon, a galaxy. What is it that you think the universe has to give you to finally make you content? It doesn't matter. It will never be enough. I'm not saying you won't enjoy it. But will you be happy? Will you be content? Will you have a lasting joy? In the end, you give it all away. You go to your brave kiss. These are good things you understand. And in verse 17, Paul is going to say, the good things that God gives to us are things to be enjoyed. It's not that we should uh, despise these good things, if you have them. But good things that become obsessive things, that become ultimate things, destroy us. And so in verse 9, these foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. A plunger, that word plunge is, is the word used for, for sinking a ship at sea. It's a total loss, isn't it? And Paul knows well what it is to be on, on board a ship that sinks at sea. It happens to him on multiple occasions. You wouldn't want to be travelling with Paul, I think, if he was crossing the sea. But the point is, it's a total destruction. There's nothing left and bits of detritus bobbing along on the sea. But basically, it's a loss, isn't it? I think mean, this is a picture of final judgment here, That the word ruin there has that real sense about it. There is an ultimate danger for us if we become obsessed with the things of this world. If we cast aside our devotion to Christ, or well, anything else, and that anything else becomes an ultimate thing for us, it can destroy us eternally. We give up Christ, and we will lose him forever. But notice that it isn't even just a final judgment that the love of money brings. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And not money by itself, you understand, but the love of money, and not all evil, but certainly some kinds of evil. There are very few sins, I take it, that we commit that are not designed to bring us happiness through our idols. We choose to go against God because we think happiness is found in another way. But such idolatry is self-destructive. It is spiritual self-harm. Notice what he says. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Just consider the contrast there. The person who is devoted to Jesus and to godly living has contentment. contentment with God's plan because they're right where God wants them to. Contentment in God's plan because they know God is good and pours out his love and blessings on his people all the time. That brings a second joy, a happiness that isn't disturbed by changing circumstances. And on the other hand, you have the person who looks for satisfaction in wealth and the things that wealth can bring. Such a person pierces themselves with many pains, that longing, that desperation for the next thing because that car's not enough and that house is not enough. They bring those brief moments of joy, don't know, That moment when you get you get something new out of the packet, and you go, oh, "That's really lovely, isn't it?" The new phone, It's so shiny, and it works. Not like the one I just put in the bin. it actually works. And within about three weeks, it's just scratched and old, and it's the next thing, isn't it? And the next thing. That pain, the constant longing for something else in this life that cannot satisfy. End of eternal separation from Christ. Surely the course of action here is obvious. Whether you are a Christian here or just looking into Christian things, can I ask you to be honest with yourself? Look into your own heart. What are you looking towards to bring you that lasting contentment? And can I plead with you in the strongest, strongest possible terms to fix your heart on Jesus? Nothing else, nothing else will satisfy you. But Jesus will, now and forever. He alone is big enough to fulfill our longings. He alone is good enough to do what is best for us in every situation. And one day, all our weak longings, all our faulty loves will find their ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. Because this world will be brought to an end. And we will see Jesus as he is, and we will enjoy everything that our heart truly longs for with him in his new creation forever. We don't have to strive for the things that we desire, because our best desires will definitely be met. Either now, through the indwelling of the Spirit, through the community of God's people, through the blessings that God calls out, or if not here, then for an eternity with God in his new creation. And in the meantime, let's find that joy, our contentment in pouring ourselves into godly service for our King. Let's find that contentment in doing what he longs for us to do. Let's be the community that God has intended to create. Find our joy in Jesus. Find our joy in serving him together. Cast off our idols and find true contentment in Christ. Let's pray. Our loving Lord Jesus, in our best moments we delight in you with our whole hearts. And yet we're so often distracted from you by the things of this world and the baubles and the trinkets and, um, and the love for things that you have created good that have become ultimate things for us. Please would you Give us the strength, the spiritual help to cast off our idols, to put them in their proper place, to put you as number one in our lives. Help us to pursue you and all the truth that is in you. Let us please explore the depth of your beauty and the wonder of your work for us. The way that you have loved us in the past, the way that you love us still, the way that you will love us in the future, mm-hmm. that we might find out all and our contentment in you. Give us the joy, please, of knowing you Having you as our soul and greatest love. For your name, sir. Amen.